The very essence of all cancers is a change in the way that cells divide. I remember sitting in there thinking, you know, it's not happening, it's not real, it can't be real. It's something that we don't talk about. This feeling of being overwhelmed, it will get better once you have a plan and you know what to expect and what's going to happen. It's not going to be like this all the time. The Thing About Cancer. A podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales. Information and insights. For people affected by cancer. Hello, I'm Julie McCrossan. And today, the thing about cancer is that it can be hard to know if we're making the right decisions about our treatment. How much choice do we actually have? How do we know we've explored all our options? And and once we know the options, how do we decide the best way forward? I think um, a lot of people facing cancer treatment decisions, obviously it's very difficult. One of the things that often weighs on people's minds at that time and later on is, did I make the right decision? Um, and I think, you know, you can be satisfied that you have if you've, if you've done your best to get all the information, consult all the right people, weigh it all up, and that's the best you can do at that time. So do that. Do that when you have the opportunity and then don't look back. We're talking to Professor Lyndall Trevina, a practising GP who co-leads the discipline of general practice at the University of Sydney. Lyndall has guided many patients with cancer and has also been involved in research about how patients make decisions. Just to be clear, this podcast contains general information only, so we recommend you talk to appropriate professionals about your individual situation. You can also call Cancer Council 131120 if you have any questions. Before we hear more from Lyndall, here's Georgie. Like many carers, Georgie was closely involved in the decisions surrounding her husband's cancer treatment. People assume that it's it's all going to be okay if we do what the doctor says because we've always had this belief, do what the doctor says. And through this, Rodney and I didn't not believe in the doctors. We didn't not uh, trust them. We totally trusted them, but we did ask questions. And it was really rewarding that all of our doctors said, that's a really good question. I'm actually not 100% sure. Let me check this out. If you've got a doctor who will not answer your question or who will not listen to you, get another doctor. At the start of this episode, GP Lyndall Trevina spoke about people wondering if they'd made the right decision about their cancer treatment. But Lyndall, do patients really have a choice about treatment? I mean, shouldn't we just follow the doctor's instructions? Well, depends, Julie. <laughs> um, look, there are some situations where there is one preferred and best treatment, um, but most of the time there are some options and there are some choices and it's well worth keeping that in mind. And even if there is sort of one main recommended treatment, you have a right as a patient to know what that will involve. We often hear the term shared decision-making in discussions about healthcare these days, and I think you're involved in actually teaching it. What does that mean? Well, shared decision-making is where um, the healthcare provider and the patient enter into a real partnership to decide together. Um, There's an exchange of information back and forth. It's important that the doctors know what's important to you, what are your preferences, what are your beliefs, what are your values. And it's important that you know about the the options and the benefits and harms of those. So there's this exchange of information, but importantly, you are an equal partner as a patient at the table. 
Um, the doctor's not the God sitting up high looking down on you. Um, you are an equal partner and that's what shared decision-making is. It's patient-centred care uh, where you make decisions together. Now, some people find that they don't want to make the decision um, and that's okay. If it's too burdensome, it's too difficult, it's okay to say, look, doctor, what would you decide? What would you recommend? Um, but uh, that's on the spectrum of shared decision-making and it's part of actually what we need to do is work out how much information people want uh, and how much involvement they want in the decision because not everybody wants to be involved and we need to respect that. For a doctor, a specialist of whatever kind, when they're considering what are the best options to offer uh, the patient for treatment, what are the sort of key things that they're weighing up? Well, there's lots of um, clinical factors. Doctors tend to focus on the clinical factors and this is where the patient has the best value to add to that decision-making process because the patient and their family and often their GP will be uh, the ones to know much more about them as a whole person you know, or there are other conditions they might have, what their life's like, what their social circumstances are like, what their family's like, and all of those factors can come into play as well. But your, your treating cancer team will mainly focus on the clinical, scientific, best available evidence and try and work out what would be the best thing for you. And are there a range of different approaches because it might depend on your age, your gender, the type of cancer, how advanced it is? Are they the sort of things they're, they're working through? Um, well, look, age is an interesting one because um, I think, you know, 70 is the new 60 and, and all the way down the line these days. So um, I, I actually don't believe age should be a factor. It might be to an individual. Um, more and more older people are being offered curative treatment if that's an option. Um, so what they do weigh up in the uh, the team meetings is all the different scientific components to the decisions. So these days, most of the big treatment hospitals have a multidisciplinary team. So what is a multidisciplinary team and who are some of the classic clinicians that are in it? So the, the team is cancer specific. Uh, so there'll be a lung team, a breast team and so on at the, at the big hospitals anyway. Uh, and it'll be the surgeon will be there. The pathologist will have the results of any biopsy or, or lump that's been removed. Um, they'll have the x-rays and imaging if that's been done and the radiation oncologists if that's appropriate. So they're the people who do radiothera radiotherapy. Uh, and then we might also be a medical oncologist. And what do they do? The medical oncologists are the people who prescribe drugs like chemotherapy. Um, there may even be, be others involved like nurses, um, social workers. Uh, each hospital setting is a little bit different, but in the main you'll have all the main clinical brains to give their best opinion about what would be the best treatment for your particular cancer. You mentioned that for some cancers there are uh, predictable treatments. How does that work? Do they have set guidelines? Is that something patients can see? Yes, there are best practice guidelines um, for most of the cancers and, and they are available uh, publicly. If uh, people are interested in looking for those, I'd strongly recommend the Cancer Australia website. Cancer Council also has a lot of good information, but I know that the Australian Government's Cancer Australia website 
has best practice guidelines publicly available for the common cancers anyway. Yes, for anyone who does want to track down those guidelines, you can find links to both Cancer Australia and Cancer Council Australia on our podcast page, cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. Just click through to this episode. But Lyndall, are there some cancers for which there are no set guidelines? Well, there are some rare cancers, uh, and of course that can be quite challenging. And uh, what we have, uh, though, is most of the cancers uh, are the common ones. And can you give me some examples of cancers where it is really common that the patient will be offered two or more options and they really will participate in the decision-making because there is uh, pros and cons for each approach? Yeah, I think probably the best example of that is prostate cancer. If you have early prostate cancer, um, there are a number of different ways to go. You don't have to have surgery. Um, There are actually very, very good, if not slightly better, treatment outcomes with radiotherapy. And a lot of men um, go under the knife without realising that. So they definitely have a role to play. So would it be wise if you're a a man with prostate cancer, to seek an opinion from a radiation oncologist as well as a surgeon? Very much so. And often what happens is that a man uh, has their uh, biopsy done by a surgeon, a urologist, and naturally they think, well, I've got cancer, you must cut it out. Quick, get rid of it. Um, But this is where I think actually the GP can play a really important role. Don't be frightened to go back to your GP and say, hang on a minute, are there any other options? Um, and they can refer you on to a um, radiotherapy unit. Are there other cancers where that choice uh, of a possible different treatments may come up? Oh, yes, lots of them. Um, breast cancer is one where there are different options. Um, some some women will, will choose to have the lump removed. Some women will choose to have the whole breast removed. Um, some will choose to add on other therapies like radiotherapy and chemotherapy if it's offered. Um, but you have to trade off the side effects for the potential survival gain, and that's where that balancing act goes. And what about advanced cancer for some who may be listening to this who are weighing up, uh, do I continue with intensive treatment or do I take supportive treatment and focus more on my quality of life? Is that another area where the individual patient may have some decisions to make for themselves? Yeah, look, everybody's circumstances are different in that one. And I think um, sometimes our families uh, actually want us to go through more treatment than than we're prepared to face. Um, We've certainly seen that in some of the studies in younger women who have advanced breast cancer. Um, It's a tough one because they're put under pressure by their loved ones and often people will go through a lot of suffering for for them, not necessarily for themselves. So it's not just the patient. You know, it's a whole family and and it's a group decision sometimes too, which makes it even more complex. Just coming back to that thing of asking your team, sometimes the medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist, the surgeon, are rushed people. Their, Their rooms are are full or the waiting area in the public hospital is full and you can feel the pressure to not take too long. Is it a good idea to actively inquire as to who else on the team could talk to you about different aspects of your care? Yes, you can do that. Um, I would strongly recommend that people look at the question prompt lists that are available on the Cancer Institute New South Wales website 
They've been developed in conjunction with patients and they have a list of questions that you might want to think about asking your specialist. Mm -hmm. There's one for oncologists, there's one for surgeons, there's one for a haematologist. You can print them off. You can mark the things that you are particularly sure that you want to ask or keen to ask and that might be about other treatment options. It might be about other other specialists or it might be about side effects, all sorts of things. But those question prompt lists have been developed to include the most commonly asked questions from patients who've been in your shoes. So they're a really good resource. You can scribble on them. They can be an aide de memoir when you go in to the busy specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that can actually save everybody some time and help you to get the answers that you specifically want. We'll put a link to those Cancer Institute question lists on our podcast page. Go to cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts and click through to this episode. And I know there are also question checklists at the back of Cancer Council's yellow information booklets. So that's another thing you can look at. Look, I've heard it said too, it can be a good idea to always take a friend or or partner with you. Or even some people ask their doctors if they can record the conversation on their phones so they can listen back later. What do you think about those ideas? Look, I think they're great ideas because... You know, you get a real information download and data dump. And, you know, when you're feeling sick, uh, you just can't take it in. You're in shock. You're feeling awful. And how, how on earth can you remember all those statistics and all that information? And then you're supposed to go home and make a decision. It's very difficult. And another factor that might influence a, a patient considering whether to get, for example, a second opinion, as you've indicated, may be useful, is there's a sense of urgency sometimes with cancer. We need to start treatment immediately. And if I seek a second opinion, um, I, you know, will I do damage to myself? Well, it depends on what the delay is. I think you can afford to get a second opinion provided that's that's a quick one within a week or two. Um, obviously, you don't want to be delaying months. Uh, but, you know, I think it's well worth getting a second opinion if you are unsure uh, or underconfident. I would encourage um, people to get at least two opinions. Why? Well, um, I think, you know, it's important for people to feel um, as sure as possible with the decision they're making. Um, and even though at the time it can seem overwhelming, um, I think it's good to, to get more than one perspective. And of course, you know, even to do your own reading, as you've suggested. You know, you're, you're clearly telling us a second opinion is a good idea. But what if you're anxious that your doctor will be offended uh, and, and that it somehow will impact negatively on your working relationship with them should you decide to go with them? Look, I think that we live in a different world these days than what we used to. And um, look, we have a patient charter, a patient rights. Uh, Everybody has the right to a second opinion. Um, And people don't mind that. Doctors shouldn't mind that. Uh, So be brave and speak up. Um, try and make sure that you ask about that uh, if you feel that you need to. You may actually be very happy and satisfied that um, the person that's treating you is part of the team and, you know, that's that's the way you want to go, that's fine. But if you do have any doubts um, and you want to get a second opinion, don't be frightened to speak up. It's your life and your body, uh, so, you know, Nobody will mind if you do that.
when Suzanne was diagnosed with breast cancer, she decided to get a second opinion. The first doctor that I saw, which is why I often tell people to get more than one opinion, because it's quite a process that you go through and it's and it's a very drawn out process and you really want to like who you're working with. So um, the first doctor that I saw, um, she was very matter of fact and very blunt and um, it was a real shock. Then the next day I had been, it had been suggested to me by another friend that had been through it to go and see the doctor she saw. So for a second opinion, not that I was expecting a different answer, but just to see if maybe there was a better connection. From, from the get-go he was great, probably a little better at explaining what was going on and what the prognosis was and what the outcomes were likely to be. I felt very um, very well in good hands, very well looked after. So it, the process started from there. So Lyndall, what are the practical steps? How do you get a second opinion? Oh, look, this is where I would say go back to your GP um, and they're your champion. They know you and uh, just say to them, look, that guy you sent me to, yeah, I'm not convinced. Is there somebody else I can go and see? The other thing, of course, you know, ask around. Ask uh, as much as you can uh, if you have um, family or friends who are in the know, medical, um, other other patients, um, you know, helplines, um, whatever you feel comfortable doing. Some people feel they've got just an information overload and that they, they've had enough. Um, but if, you, if you're wanting to pursue it, go for it. You know, really, really ask as many people, just talk to them about it as, as much as you want to. Yes, and, and another option if you're unsure about your next steps might be to call Cancer Council 13 11 20. They can be really helpful, especially if you're not quite sure how to navigate the healthcare system. But, but Lyndall, is it acceptable to ask the doctor who's arranged your first diagnostic tests to pass on those results to the second doctor or do you have to go through all those tests again? Oh, no, you shouldn't have to go through the tests again. It is quite reasonable for um, those results to be shared, uh, for scans to be sent across. Actually, a lot of the time, you know, patients do have copies of these and, uh, you know, the cancer patients walking around with this big plastic bag of x-rays and test results and folders of paper. And so, so often we have copies and it's okay to ask for copies of things. Uh, and if there's something that you don't have a copy of, then that can be sent through. The internet can be a wild and worrying place. Do you think it's best to stick to recommended sites by Cancer Australia, Cancer Council? Yeah, I mean, really they are um, independent and um, sort of scientifically based websites. Uh, you can trust the, uh, the Cancer Council, you can trust... Cancer Australia, you can trust the Cancer Institute New South Wales. They're all very trustworthy websites. And I guess uh, general practice, your general practitioner is there uh, to accompany you on this journey, aren't they? And, and asking your GP about sites might be useful as well. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people we know come back to their GP to actually clarify that second opinion issue and just double check that what they've been told is the right thing. Um, now, your GP is not necessarily, you know, a multidisciplinary team all in themselves, 
but they are your advocate and they do know you and your family often and um, they have your interests at heart. And they may help you with questions to ask as well. And how do you know you're seeing the best specialist for your type of cancer? How can you check that out? Well, I would recommend people look at the CanRefer website. Now, that's another Cancer Institute New South Wales resource, and they have a database of all the multidisciplinary teams in New South Wales, and you can type in your cancer type and your postcode, and they will give you a list of all the breast specialists near you who are part of a multidisciplinary team. So that's a key one you we should look out for that we want to be part of a multidisciplinary team. That's right. And part of a specialist cancer centre if we can. Yes, look, I think that's ideal, um, particularly if you have some of the more technically challenging cancers for, for surgery. Uh, for example? So we know that if you have gastric cancer or if you have pancreatic cancer, those operations are technically quite tricky. So you don't want um, a surgeon who only does that operation once in a blue moon. Uh, You know, you want to go to a specialist centre. New South Wales State will allow you to do that even out of area because they know that the, the outcomes are better. So one of the common questions may be how often do you do this procedure so that you get a sense of how much experience your your surgeon has. Someone might be listening to this and they live in in rural or remote Australia or a regional centre and they might be wondering what if there isn't a nearby multidisciplinary team or specialist cancer centre? You know, should I travel to a city? Well, you don't necessarily have to. Uh, All over Australia there are... um, opportunities for telehealth. There's some fantastic programs where Indigenous um, cancer sufferers are uh, able to stay with their community and their family and loved ones and talk to the specialist in the major city through a Skype or video link. And do you do that with your GP? Usually with a GP or or a nominated um, shared care provider at, at your local town. Okay, so that you can... Uh, access at least information and advice from wherever you are. But when do you think it is worth travelling to the city for treatment? Because that's not uncommon in Australia, is it? Some people um, will be recommended to do that. Um, I think the rarer cancers, the more technically difficult um, surgeries, most of the time uh, your GP should be referring you through to a a major cancer centre. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, the common cancers. If you have a regional centre which offers radiotherapy and you have early prostate cancer, you can, you can use that service. Um, you don't have to all uh, go to the, the big capital cities. You're listening to The Thing About Cancer, a podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales. I'm Julie McCrossan and I'm talking to GP Lyndall Trevina about what to consider when making decisions about your cancer treatment. If you've got any questions about this topic or just want to talk to someone about your concerns, you can call Cancer Council 13 11 20. For links to more information or any of the services we mention or to listen to more podcasts, visit cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. This 
Let's turn to the question of side effects because sometimes people can feel quite well at the time of diagnosis, but the treatment itself can make them unwell. How do you decide if if difficult side effects are worth it? Well, it's a bit like facing um, some sort of gamble. (laughs) You don't know what's going to happen to you. You might get it, you might not. And that's the tough thing for people facing the decision. Uh, I think if you have good information, that can certainly help. uh, So you'll know what to expect. And if if you do get those side effects, then uh, you're not worrying. And um, I, th- I think everybody is different in what they can tolerate and what they're prepared to put up with. So ask questions about what the side effects are likely to be in the, the short, medium and long term so you're informed. Exactly. And again, your GP can help you with managing and um, you know getting those under control. I think people speaking up to and asking for help is an important message because some people are nervous about... Um, taking opioids, for example, med- medications to deal with pain, they worry about addiction. What would you say if a patient of yours was had that concern and was facing some rigorous treatment? Well, um, we know that having good pain control is the first step to healing. Your body will heal better if your pain is under control. Uh, and, you know, if you're taking recommended doses for pain in the short term, there's a very low chance of becoming addicted. It's more important that you focus on healing and supporting your body to heal from the cancer. Is it useful to ask the aim of treatment and also what would happen if you didn't have it? Well, um, I think that most the, most times these days people will be told whether their um, treatment is really uh, likely to cure the cancer or whether it's um, something for supportive and palliative care approaches. And they're two very different sorts of decisions. Um, so if you're actually going for, for cure, um, a lot of the time people will be prepared to put up with more side effects and um, more difficulty in the interim for a longer-term gain. That's very different than if you're looking at a shorter-term gain with the same side effects. Just while we're talking about side effects... Give us an idea of the sort of uh, help that's available to manage side effects. And I suppose we should also mention that many advances in cancer treatment are going forward at the rate of knots. And so what side effects were caused by a treatment even a year ago or two years ago may not be the case now. Yeah, well, we've got new and really fantastic anti-nausea drugs, for instance, um, and, you know, they're available. So the nausea is not the issue it was 20 years ago, the nausea and vomiting. Uh, even with hair loss, you know, there are some new techniques with um, cold uh, on the scalp that, that can reduce or minimise the hair loss. Uh, I think one of the things cancer treatment does is makes people very tired and we know that exercise is actually incredibly uh, effective at reducing fatigue. So walking or swimming, um, whatever suits you. Um, So these are all things you can do um, and we're knowing more and more and more about how we can reduce these side effects. You know, this is all about weighing up, uh, you know, your options when you've given a cancer diagnosis. Sometimes there are potentially long-term issues to do with fertility, for example. So is it important to ask for long-term potential side effects and 
build that into your planning right from the start? Yes, um, that's really important, particularly the fertility one. If uh, if you're younger and still wanting to um, have family, have baby, get pregnant, um, that is actually a really important one because um, if you have that conversation early, you can sometimes organise to have some um, eggs harvested um, so that you know you can uh, have IVF down the track, um, and there are plenty of women um, out there who've who've done that. Um, it makes a real difference. And for men, yes, yes, sperm storage is is an option, definitely. What if you do understand what's being offered and you just don't like the idea? You're not satisfied. What what do you do then? Well, of course, that's your right and your choice. But you need to be really sure that you understand what's being offered. Um, I think sometimes people, uh, I would hate to think that, that something had been dismissed just because there was a lack of understanding or, or people weren't properly informed. I mean, if you make an informed choice to dismiss an option, that's entirely your right. Um, but if you dismiss something and you're still a little bit ignorant about what you're dismissing, um, you don't want to live to regret that. And I think regret after making decisions around cancer is something that a lot of people struggle with. As someone who's had cancer, it, I, I, I sometimes wished I'd studied maths and probability at university because you're given so many numbers and statistics and likelihoods that as you weigh up whether you should pursue certain courses of treatment. Do you think it's important to ask for your prognosis? What does prognosis mean? And should you ask the, the viewpoint, the assessment of your clinical team? So prognosis is a bit of medical jargon, but what it really means is sort of your likelihood of surviving or what's likely to happen to you into the future. So, you know, will you be cured? Will you uh, be cancer-free in five years' time, 10 years' time? Um, what side effects might you have longer term, short term, longer term. That's prognosis. Um, I think it is really important to find out. Um, it, it's crucial to your decision making. Um, but it's often one of the most difficult questions for patients to ask. Because on the one hand, you want to know, but on the other hand, you don't want to know in case it's bad news. <laughs> um, but at some point, I think it's really good to face up to it. Um, this is where the question prompt lists can be helpful. A lot of them will provide you with wording that will help you to have the courage to, um, to speak up when you're with your specialist. Uh, they have a lot of questions specifically about prognosis because we know it's one of the most difficult things to ask about. Of course, as with everything, it is a personal decision whether you find out your prognosis. And some people may prefer not to know, and that's your choice. There are psychologists in these multidisciplinary teams. I used one myself. If you want to talk through any distress you feel, ask for a psychologist. Although sometimes there might be a nurse or, or someone else that you feel you've got a rapport with and a quick chat with them might be useful. And you can always call Cancer Council 13 11 20. But Lyndall, basically you're saying that it's generally a good idea to find out the prognosis to help you guide your decision making. That's right. And it's more likely to be good news than bad news. So remember that. 
Another challenge many people with a diagnosis experience is the um, family member or friend who's done an internet search and discovered some form of miracle cure that's outside the normal range of things offered by a multidisciplinary team. Again, your thoughts there, how do you manage that when you're so anxious for your own recovery and someone's advocating something outside of the norm? Well, it's really important to discuss any other treatments with your um, treating cancer team and your GP. Why? Because some of them can interact and interfere with your with your cancer treatment, and uh, you know you could unwittingly do quite a lot of harm to yourself. One of the question prompt lists that I was talking about before is actually questions about complementary therapies that you can ask your cancer doctor. Um, And, you know, that could be a good resource for people to look at and just give you an idea of the sort of things to ask yourself and ask others about before you launch into something. We often talk about alternative therapies, complementary therapies, you know, out of the mainstream. But how do you know if a treatment is out of the mainstream? How do you find out what's what's kosher and what's more problematic potentially? Well, um, there. I think, again, it's important that you talk to your doctor about these things. Um, if you're not comfortable doing that and you want to do your own research, uh, I, I would be looking at the Cancer Institute, Cancer Australia, Cancer Council New South Wales websites. If things are not listed on these well-known, well-researched cancer resources, you should be a little bit suspicious. This is a situation in which trust in evidence-based medicine is a good idea. Isn't it as simple as that, that cancer's not something you mess around with? Well, that's right. Um, You know, it's a serious illness and there has been a lot of research into cancer treatments. And um, I think it's important to, to trust the source of the information, but also the advice that you're getting from your healthcare professionals. And Cancer Council also has a booklet called Understanding Complementary Therapies. So people might be interested in that. Of course, there is growing evidence that some complementary therapies can be useful in both recovery and prevention. Isn't that right? Oh, that's right, and, and in symptom management as well. Um, ginger tea is very good for nausea, and um, if you like ginger tea, then there's no harm done in drinking that. Um, acupuncture, massage, um, and a lot of these sorts of therapies are available um, in the integrated cancer centres in conjunction with your treating cancer team. So you can access the complementary therapies that we know are evidence-based um, with some assurance that you're, you're doing something addition, additional if you want to, um, but you're not going to be compromising your treatment. People need to be very careful that if they are going to try alternative therapies that they do tell their doctor about it. You know, some other factors can influence decision-making, like money, for example. You know, that can be an issue, can't it? It can be. We're very lucky in Australia, though, that we have, um, you know, a health system that provides free cancer care um, to people. So, and I think all of our most um, famous and, um, you know, fantastic uh, cancer centres are government-run uh, or at very at the very least, um, not for profit. So you know, I, I think we're in a pretty good situation to see that um, most people will be able to get the care that they need in a high quality centre without 
having to worry about the costs. And that's very different from other parts of the world. And yet some new treatments may not be subsidised yet and, if, and yet a person may be interested in at least knowing about them and deciding whether to expend personal funds in, in pursuing them, some targeted therapies, immunotherapy, robotic surgery. What is your advice to patients who are looking to find out all their options? Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting one because just just because something's a new treatment doesn't necessarily mean it's better. And we tend to sort of uh, hear hype in the media and good people love a good news story that there might be a new treatment for cancer. Um, but you need to look very carefully at whether they've been properly tested and what are the side effects and downsides of those before rushing in to think, well, just because it's new, it must be better. Now, throughout this conversation, I've spoken to you as an expert and a general practitioner and a, and a teacher of general practitioners, but you're also a cancer survivor yourself. Yes, I am. And so do you mind just telling us maybe two or three things you learned uh, as a patient that added to your knowledge and understanding? Yeah, well, the irony is that um, I teach uh, shared decision-making and I research shared decision-making and I found myself in the situation of having to make a decision myself about cancer treatment options. And I think what I learnt was how important it is um, to have uh, good communication skills, that your clinician has good communication skills. Um, I got two opinions. One was, you know, communicated very well. The options were communicated well. The other was really pretty abysmal. And it may, I walked out of there thinking, oh, wow, if I hadn't been a well-informed, highly educated health professional myself, I could have uh, ended up making some pretty bad decisions in, from my perspective. So, so, so you're saying that the capacity uh, of your clinical team, or particularly the medical leaders, to be able to talk to you is crucial. What if you've got someone who's not a good communicator but they're a great diagnostician or they're a great surgeon? Well, this is where I think what we were talking about earlier, making sure that you, you check a range of resources, um, that you look things up for yourself um, yes, they might be a great technician, um, but double check, get that second opinion, check with your GP, um, talk, to, talk to the other. If they're on a multidisciplinary team, um, you can be confident that, you know, a range of health professionals have looked at your case. So these are some of the things that can reassure you if you come away from a bad communicator thinking, oh, I have a few doubts. <laughs> because cancer's a team sport. That's what I've learned. It's definitely a team sport and don't forget your family because they're there with you the whole time, hopefully, um, but the people that love you or loved ones from wherever they are around the world and that will really carry you through. That's it for this episode of The Thing About Cancer. Our thanks to Lyndall, Georgie and Suzanne for sharing their knowledge and insights. If you're looking for more information, you can ring the Cancer Council 131120 Information and Support Service from anywhere in Australia or go to cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So leave us a review on iTunes or on our website. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can do it in Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting app. If you found this episode useful, you might be interested in our podcast on new cancer treatments. We talked to Dr. Stephen Cow, a medical oncologist 
from the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse about the role of targeted therapy and immunotherapy in treating cancer. Our immune system is designed to detect anything that shouldn't be there. Uh, so whether it's infection, a bug or a cancer cells that shouldn't be there, they basically should be recognising them and kill it. And somehow the cancer cells has become very smart. They evade the surveillance from the immune system, and that's how they keep growing. Um, And so immunotherapy is a way to try to boost our immune system up so that they can start seeing those horrible little cells so that they can kill it. Look for that episode, New Cancer Treatments, Immunotherapy and Targeted Therapy, on our website at cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. The stories and experiences contained in this podcast represent the views and opinions of the speakers. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cancer Council New South Wales. This podcast contains general information only and Cancer Council New South Wales recommends you obtain independent advice specific to your circumstances from appropriate professionals. I'm Julie McCrossan and you've been listening to The Thing About Cancer a podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales, produced by Jenny Bruce and Miles Martignoni.